Seven is a number, both prime and divine. Seven yeah. is a number, both prime and divine. Seven is a do. number, both prime All and divine. Seven is a number, Check both prime and divine. United like the Justice League, we unlimited. Five transformed into seven, magnificent amalgamation. Super Saiyan, we ain't playing. 106.5 is the radio station. Triple Nation is the name of the tribe. 610-267-215. All around the globe in every area code. Online, on air, whatever the mode. Days and nights, live or recorded. Listeners rewarded with the rawness. Keeping it flawless like a Batman plan. Jedi flips or a Spider-Man handstand. Peace to every geek we stand for. From Kronos to the bottom city of Candor. We about to catch wreck. Turn up your set, black triples on deck. Y'all know what time it is. Black triples in your area. Let's go. Hey there, boys and girls, cats and kittens, children of all ages. Welcome to another brand spanking live edition of Black Triple. Hey, that's Star Wars. That's not Star Trek. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> My name is Len, aka the Bat Tribble. And as always, I am joined in this lovely StreamYard studio by this lady. Hi, that's me, your favorite good ghoul gone bad, Gabe the Horror Tribble, talking about spooky stuff or political stuff like today. We'll see. And we also have this guy. What up? Your mama's favorite nephew, cousin Muscles, to the young bucks' uncle Buff, Super Saiyan Triple up in the building. Much love. And we couldn't not have a show without this very tall, hairy gentleman right here. Ew, what it do? What's up, y'all? I'm the greatest. Trust me, there's no stopping this, and I will win like a Star Trek communist. I'll be dropping this like my hands were slippery. Come and get with me on a Thursday night. Y'all lucky, because I would bounce for some football, but I'm going to chill out and rock out here with y'all. Your man, our son, the voice of reason, a.k.a. the Super Triple, the Rand Steel, Cowboy Jedi, football fan, numero uno. Thank you, and our number one Star Trek girl is... Yo, what up? It's your girl Kennedy, also known as Storm Triple, also known as Mjolnir Triple, also known as Talij, also known as the everyday Phillies Bay till the day I die, 215. What's good, y'all? It's Thursday night. Floating. We got a special show for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We got a special guest in the building, and it is none other than Will Win, the Star Trek communist. Thanks for beaming me aboard. The USS Black Tribbles. Glad to be. Glad to be here. What up, man? What up? How are you? Last Good. time I saw you was in New York City. The city never sleeps, but obviously a lot has changed since then. That's true. That is true. But we're going to get into that in just a minute because I know Len had some pressing matters he wanted to address before we get down to the fun stuff. Well, cool. uh, uh, yes, it, uh, yes, I do, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to have a fun show, a fun 
interesting conversation. It proves it should be uh, a very interesting dialogue that we present for you this evening. We are, as always, streaming live on Facebook in our Tribble Nation Facebook group, as well as on the Black Tribbles page. And we are also coming to you live on YouTube on the Black Tribbles channel, where the action figure expert, Roger Lopez, Max, and everyone out there is uh, enjoying the show right now. We hope to present for you a good time this evening. First, before we get into our conversation, we have to uh, get into a little bit of news that has happened. I a couple, of, only a couple of items, real quick. Tribbles, I like saying that like I'm a game show host. Um, yes. <laughs> did you hear that there was an announcement that Will Smith announced on his YouTube channel that they are doing a reboot of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air? Uh huh. <laughs> Two seasons already, guaranteed. Yes, the series will be called uh, Bel Air, um, set in modern day America. It, it is a serialized one, one hour dramatic analog of the 90s sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which leans into the original premise Will's complicated journey from the streets of West Philadelphia to the gated mansions of Bel Air. With a reimagined vision, Bel Air will dive deeper into the inherent conflicts, emotions, and biases that were impossible to fully explore in a 30-minute sitcom format while still delivering swagger and nods to the original show. Uh, I'm curious, Tribbles, what say you of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, the dramatic reboot? Okay. I'm down. Okay, I'm we've down. got we've got claps, we've got sighs, we've got yawns. We <laughs> but yeah. It makes me nervous that like it's a reboot and not sort of like a continuation of the things, only because when you do reboot something, you run the risk of it being way worse than it originally was anyway. So um with trying to reboot the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which I'm currently like rewatching again on like HBO Max, uh, I thought it was pretty good on beat. I don't need another version of it, honestly. But if they want to do it, I'm not gonna say no. I will watch it and just pray that it's really good. I think, I think the, the the thing that'll make a difference is that it's a drama. You know what I mean? Like there was. Like you were saying, there was a whole lot they couldn't do yeah. um, as, as a comedy. It just wouldn't have worked, particularly at the time. So, you know, let's see what happens. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how they take, you know, that same concept and make it dramatic um, and where it's going to go. You know, the whole thing could just be, like, him getting stopped in the neighborhood every day. Like, why are you here? Like, look, I live here, man. Like, how many times? Can you, how many times can you do that? And if you're gonna do two seasons, you're gonna have to go. Past, you're gonna have to get past that fairly quickly. It's gonna happen. What? Um, but yeah, I, I want to see what they're gonna do. It's 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 an interesting it's interesting conceptually. I would like to see something completely opposite. I'd like to see like uh like a a random white kid from like the Hamptons. Whose family loses all of their money, and like, and they all die, and the only family he's got left is like 
like some random cousins that live right off of Kensington Ave. You know what I mean? And he has to go live down there. Like, give me that. Ooh, that that would be a good I would see that. Give me that. I watch that all day. You know what? I, I watch I, I that all that. day. I, I don't think that would ever get like a Hollywood green light, but I'll probably watch that. I that, would that, watch that, that all day. I feel like that would get the green light before. I mean, obviously not before because it's happened, right? It's already been greenlit. But yeah. I mean, that story has been seen before. We've constantly seen privileged, affluent white folks get put into urban communities and how they fare, and you know. But but I mean, like their own urban communities, like the idea of like, because you know how it's real rugged out right there, right there in K and A, and a lot of that is poor white people. Yeah, right? I know. I live here. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I, I would, I would, that for me would be a would be a thing. I would watch that. I'd watch that. For I don't a while. know. I'm a little and sensitive. My teeth out of my head. I'm a little sensitive about that because I I live in this community. I've been here for a year now, so I'm intrinsically aware of a lot of the issues that um, plague the folks who are you know dealing with substance abuse and addiction and not being able to gain the tools and the resources in order to, you know, get their lives on track. Um, so I don't know if I would be open to to seeing that as if that would be, you know, some type of monumental thing. I'm also sensitive to, to you know, Hollywood type shining light on the hood as if it's some type of, you know, mystical, mythical place that, you know, the system didn't have any responsibility for creating. Like all black, black and brown and impoverished white folks were like, yeah, I just, I just want to live like this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, as far as the reboot, you know, added to the list of things I didn't need that, you know, nobody asked for that, you know, could, or it's taking a bandwidth for countless independent creatives and cool stories like okay Bel Air is cool I would rather see Tuskegee Airs for two seasons as a drama personally that would be pretty dope you know what I mean so Will were you a fan of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and uh what do you think of this whole concept so I was I was a fan I grew up in the 90s so I was a fan of of like the Fresh Prince, you had Family Matters. It was it was all of the you know hanging with Mr. Cooper, all those types of that. Wow, you didn't go hanging with Mr. Cooper on us. Yes, you did. All right, <laughs> I did. <laughs> but at the same time, but I think as as I grew up and and as I matured as well, I think uh, there's a lot of nostalgia with with Fresh Prince Bel Air. But also, I think in a way, you watch it now and you watch it with different eyes. And I think true. I would agree. I agree with Kennedy. I think is it needed. Not necessarily. And if I watch it back with a different eye, right, you know, Uncle Phil, Aunt Viv, they're bougie as hell. I mean, they're bougie. I mean, they're really in terms of um, they have a particular, uh, I think, uh, yeah, they're 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 a particular class interest. Right. Uh, And there was a really radical episode. Remember when I think there was someone from their past came, they were protesting apartheid and and that kind of stuff. And they were kind Mm -hmm. of really trying to to get Uncle Phil saying, hey, I think you sold out. I think you, uh, you know, weren't down with the struggle at that time. And it was like a really interesting episode at that time. Um, watching it now that, you know, maybe she had some points about maybe, you know, how does Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv get to live in a, a palace that that looks like the White House, looks very big. Um, and there's also another great episode they did with, um, I think the older Aunt Viv, the darker-skinned Aunt Viv, before they replaced her, uh, yeah. where uh, 
they were um, basically saying uh, they had to go on strike or they kind of had to occupy that uh, classroom. And like mm-hmm. uh, Will and Got Carlton, like, you know, uh, chained themselves to the, to the, uh, to the, uh, to the classroom. Desk, to the desk, right? And it was right. very interesting. It was very cool. So like those elements of that, that I think are really interesting. I didn't pick up as a kid, but watching it now, I don't know, would they still pick up those things? Would Uncle Phil still be a judge? And he would still kind of work in like that justice system thing. I think it's all um, it's all very interesting to kind of see um, how that would play out, whether it's necessary. It's a whole nother thing. It seems like all this stuff is recycled all the time do they have something new to say uh i don't know and am i like a sourpuss to say maybe it's not necessary probably because i think there's a niche that's that's not filled when you have shows like this to kind of take up the like kennedy said the bandwidth mm-hmm. uh because it's kind of a brand right fresh prince will smith it's it's a brand. He's got a whole clothing so. brand it's a brand like it's a legit yep. brand unless Will is playing a teacher in Bel Air Academy. True. I'm good. Well, I'm actually when I well, let me hear from Gabe if she had any thoughts on this. Um, this yeah, whole reboot. Sure. Um, well, you know, I know there's like this resurgence of all of the the older shows being available on TV, and so I'm sure that you know Hollywood and all of them have seen that there's a this kind of. Uh, need for kind of like going back and and revisiting those episodes and kind of enjoying them because they are, um, you know, a relaxing element too, with all that's going on outside to be able to just kind of like be in nostalgia. But I don't think bringing it back is the answer. It's like, let us just enjoy what was there Um, as well as it's like, why don't we give other voices something to do, right? Like (laughs) we have other stories. We have more things. We have things that are relevant right now that could be said, that could be taking up that space. Like why not have like, you know, Will Smith just helping someone else who's a burgeoning like actor or director make something new that is for today and will be the nostalgia for the next generation instead of kind of just like regurgitating. Like let's enjoy those things like, you know, sister, sister and girlfriends and all that that's coming back and, and just binge those and, leave and then it in have the something new. Yeah. Yeah. And well, get something new, I think. Well, I, well that's I, what this was. This was he got the idea came from the, the YouTube thing. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Like this was something that Will just randomly came up with. Somebody came up with this idea and then I think Will decided to back it. Like this is just a thing that somebody had put together. Yeah. Yeah. Morgan Cooper. Like, what if. Yeah. So and if, he could, the, if he could do that, someone need to slide that man a copy of Tuskegee Airs or Is Not Not the Worst Spider or something. Like, there's so many stories that, that can be told in this place. I don't know. I, it's one of those things now where we're, we're faced with the, the paradigm. It's like, okay, yay, great. We're seeing more of ourselves. We're seeing more of our stories. But the, the quality of the content needs to be considered as well. Not to say this will be like low quality production. It probably won't if, if Will Smith has anything to do with it. But at the same time, like some things you just need to leave alone, like the 90s and fascism. Just a thought. When when I think of this, I'm of, I'm of several minds. The first thing that I think of is I think of, and Randy will definitely remember this, there was a time where they kept trying to f- figure out something to do with 
the Brady's kids because they were hot again and they they latched on the idea, hey, you know, the the sitcoms aren't working, the variety specials aren't working. So let's take the Brady's kids and let's move them into a one hour drama called The Brady's. And it was about oh their God. family. And I forgot about that. And it did, did not that go. Oh, wow. It it it, it came and went because it was horrible because nobody Ooh, cared. Shit. Nobody wanted to see the Brady's one all grown up and all with their kids in some dramatic setting. No one cared about that. You know, the nostalgia of it could not make that make that fly now that being said i also remember when they first announced that they were doing a reboot of battlestar galactica battlestar galactica was a a very much of a cult favorite from yeah. from the 70s um because it hit the airwaves right in the wake of star wars and everything like that and it it was a cult favorite. It wasn't a great show, but you you know, if you were a kid, you loved it. It was sci-fi on on a network television. Um, and then when they announced a reboot, people were kind of cautiously excited about it. Which way are they going to go? And they took it and they made something new of it, and it worked so much so that now they're rebooting the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. You know, so if it, if done right, it 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 can work. Them trying to take the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, reboot it, do something different with it. I don't think it's something that necessarily has to be done, but is this Will Smith, to Gabe's point, way of reaching back to some dude who, on a whim, came up with this joke four-minute YouTube remix of his show as a drama and say, yo, dude, I think we can make something of this and this might be a way to get your name out there so you're your more original ideas um, can get in front of certain people to to live and to thrive and, and to be brought to life, then who am I to knock him for doing that by, by also using the IP that he has at his disposal of making this dude's dream come true and maybe offering people a, a, another little piece of nostalgia. It's not like he's He's saying he's going to star in it. And even I wouldn't imagine he probably will have some kind of small role in it and probably... He's going to pop up as somebody dead. Well, you know Word. he is and probably find some <laughs> some type of way to throw, you know... Or throw the principal a, or something, yeah. Throw a bone to all the other people, you know, all his other castmates from the show. Um, so who am I to knock him for doing it? Is it something that has to be made? Of course not. But you know what? The, the networks and movie screens are littered with things by people not of our color doing things that didn't need to be be done. So if some of us are in a position to do something that will feed some niche out there while also giving a leg up to a, a, to um, someone behind the scenes as well as whomever in front of the scenes that are going to be casting this, Go ahead and do your bra. And it's going to be on Peacock. He's got a two-season order. Nobody's going to watch it after that because nobody's got Peacock. But those people <laughs> will have checks that will cash. So God bless them. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> um, two new black talk show hosts on Peacock, though. Like, I kind of feel obligated to care a little bit. Are you going to get Peacock? Are you going to get Peacock? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. She said she should. Don't mean she will. I don't know. 
Yeah, see, they're actually doing a a, a 30th uh, reunion thing, and they're bringing back. I think they're bringing back both Aunt Vivs. Right, and that's going to be on HBO Aunt Max. Awkward. <laughs> All right. I, I mean, mean, it won't be. It won't be like it's not real, awkward. Real. Everybody knows the casting was colorism, yeah. right? Everybody knows that, and I'm pretty sure the actress that stepped up was like, "Oh, please God, I need this job," you know. George Kimona know. says that he he'll only co-sign if Nia Long signs up. Um, uh, we all know how you feel about that, Len. Yeah, I, Len's I, all aboard. All aboard. No. Uh, anyway, and um... Len, just, Len just submitted. Len just submitted his application to Bel Air Academy. He's going to be teaching in the audiovisual department. He's going to be teaching podcasting one hundred and one for for freshmen and seniors. Uh, um, oh my goodness! That, you know, conveniently leads leaves you know a whole block of the curriculum open for commingling. I mean lunch. I mean mm-hmm. hanging out in Miss yeah. Long's class. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, so that's right. happened. And, he and stumbled over his words. He, he all lost in it already. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Len got no comebacks when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, no comebacks. <laughs> he like yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. very much. Yeah, yeah. He like, yeah, 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 yeah. I got an A in that class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, next story. Um, <laughs> And this is this is a a sad story. Uh, the actress Diana Riggs uh, passed away today, the age of eighty two years old. Uh, Diana Riggs, who was famously um, heralded as she actually she was uh, she I should give her her proper's. She's Dame Diana Riggs. Uh, get it right. Get it right. Get it right. Uh, she was. Famous for playing the role of Emma Peel in the 1960s uh, uh, BBC spy thriller series, The Avengers, along with Patrick McNee as John Steed. Um, That team would go on to legendary status in the annals of spy and television. And for um, just to let you know that she she don't stop, won't stop. She. was mm-hmm. Lady Tyrell in the Game mm-hmm. of Thrones? G Mom. G Mom. Trash talk. G Mom. Cersei. She was no joke. Diana Riggs uh, gone at the age of 82 years. Wasn't young. she a Bond girl too? Did she, she was a Bond. James Bond. She was the only Bond girl to marry James Bond in uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. The the one James Bond that starred George Lansenby. George Lansenby, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's unfortunate that it stars George Lansenby because, one, Diana Riggs was the best Bond girl, and, two, on her Majesty's Secret Service, it's not a bad movie. It no, it's not actually a bad movie is one all. of the better James Bond movies. Was that the one that they remade and didn't really tell anybody? There no. are two Bond movies that have almost the exact same plot, and I can't remember which one it is. No, I think that's Thunderball. Like I believe that's Thunderball. Is it Thunderball? Okay. Yeah. Thunderball and and what? Um, it Thunderball and so then, it was Thunderball and Never Say Never Again. Yes, the movie that um, Sean Sean Connery came back for. Okay. 
What are you looking at, Kennedy? I'm just trying to figure out when we can get back in the, you know, you two are done nerd making out and whatnot. Love to get back in the swing of things. Wait, what was their bonding? I just want to know. They're making friends. They're they're friendly tonight. It's kind of it's awesome and a little gross at the same time. It's weird. I'm used to, <laughs> Give it a minute. Uh, I'm used to dad's fighting. I'm not used to this. <laughs> her, her name, uh, her name, Gabe, uh, her bond name was Teresa uh, slash Tracy D. De Vincenzo. See, she she didn't even have like a you know double entendre Bond's name. Yeah, that, that's how boss she was. Yeah, she's that that she's letting she's them know that name. she she got that she had that whap she had that whap. She, had the only whap. she said I don't cook and I don't clean, but let me tell you how I got this ring. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Uh, so I, I, we will miss Diana Rigg. Anyone have any thoughts? Will, do you have any thoughts to share on the passing of Diana Rigg? So I don't know a lot about the the James Bond canon or uh, or even like the Avengers. I, I knew that she was in Game of Thrones. It's a, it is a, it is unfortunate when you, when you see these you know actors and actresses pass because they're so versatile when they when they go through their career, right? Mm-hmm. And it's good to see you know. Someone like Diana Riggs have that versatility. You kind of want to see it more in, in Hollywood and media. Uh, I think one person that kind of comes to mind that has a versatility, you know, Dame Judi Dench is in a lot yep. of things. She's in Bond. Of, um, but I think it is good to see these types of, of characters. And, and in a way, uh, Star Trek does a lot of that too. A lot of uh, actors and actors that were in the original series back in the 60s will go on and play roles decades later. And they're completely different because they've aged decades later. But the fact that they're so versatile and they still can kind of do these types of things. It is, it is very, you want to see more of it. And hopefully you see more of that with um, other actors and actresses, but yes, it is, it is sad. It's always sad news when this happens. I, I think in the world of Star Trek, everyone was allowed to age except Kirk, everyone else. <laughs> Yo, I just rewatched all the movies this weekend. Your guy had every piece on his head. I swear half of his lines didn't come from him. They came from the, Oh, you Fuck. Yeah, it was, it was actually a third coming from him, a third from, and then a third from the girls. So, mm-hmm. no, the, the, the girls. That was the, the girls. girls. That's what it was. <laughs> that's what. It, that's what it was. If you, if you, if you really listen intently, you can hear the girdle straining against <laughs> his stomach in almost every scene. Look at Will. Look at Will. Like, yes, I, I have a supercut of exactly all of those noises. <laughs> I, in Star uh, Trek 4 no comment. Voyage Home, oh, in Star Trek 4 Voyage Home, the scene where he goes underwater to open up the latch so that the whales can get out, I just want to give a shout out to everybody on that costuming team because your boy not only had that girdle on underwater, mm. but that piece did not move. No, it did not. That was like, ah! It was it was floating with his motions and stuff. I said, "Come on!" I said, "That's a black woman's weave." Can't nobody tell me. Can't nobody tell me she quit it and put that on his head, yo. Get out of here. <laughs> Get out of here. They actually invented transplanted aluminum for that, <laughs> just to fit on his head. Yo, she had his edges laid and everything. Come on, son. Come on. I know blackness when I see it. <laughs> All right, so so uh, that's all I've got for you, uh, ladies and, and gentlemen. Corey uh, Corey Higgins uh, actually repping for uh, Dame 
Diana Riggs, and tell Cersei I want her to know it was from, it was me. Uh, I remember that line from from Game of Thrones. She was nerds everywhere were like, bluh, bluh. <laughs> she, she was definitely very hot back in back in the day, and she was hot all the way to the end. So, um, dude, I fell in love with her on the Avengers, and I was like four when I when I first started watching the show. My dad was a big BBC guy, and I was like, oh my god, who is this? Love the Avengers, and yeah, she was she was. I was like, oh okay, all right, I'm gonna watch this. It's it's crazy. Will was actually just talking about how you see you know older um, actors and then see the, see them old, but then you see them young. I've actually just finished my full binge, uh, all seasons plus the movie of uh, Downton Abbey, which uh, starred uh, one of the stars was uh, Maggie Smith, um, mm-hmm. who it was actually very weird because then I turned on Turner Classic Movies and there was a random uh, British movie on where Maggie Smith, it was like in the 50s, is running around in like a bra and and skirt and I'm like she was hot back then too I'm like whoa hold up hold up you like honestly what you doing <laughs> I'm like Lady Grantham no I'm like yo <laughs> so it it, it 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 it's it's cool to, to kind of remember that you know these um these these uh first ladies of cinema and stage were weren't the bombshells of their day so um Maggie Smith's son is hot too Oh yeah, Toby. Oh, I forget his last name. He's uh the dad on Lost in Space. He's also in that show Black Sails. Oh, oh, yo, he bad. He bad. Okay, he bad. I already wanted to shake Maggie Smith's hand, but now I definitely want to be like, hey, yo, (laughs) good looking out. Nice, uh, nice gene distribution there. I appreciate you. All right, let's get into our conversation with Will Wynn, the Star Trek communist. I just love the fact that he's in uniform. I feel so, uh, you should have seen me tearing up my room. Like, I don't have no Trek nothing. I got no Trek nothing. (laughs) This is unacceptable. He posted a photo on Instagram two hours ago, like, I'm ready. I was like, wait, I'm not. Like I said, I wear this all the time. So this is just my, you know, normal clothes. Um, So Gabe, Isaiah, Randy, Triple Nation, for those of you who were not at our inaugural run of Star Trek Into Blackness at Star Trek Mission New York four years ago, um, you all, I, I feel bad for you because you did not have the opportunity to meet Will the way we all did, okay? We did the panel, and as usual afterwards, we offer open the floor to questions. And Will hopped right up and came right to the fo- to the microphone. Mind you, always in uniform. You know the leisure John, Randy, that um that you know the, the burgundy tunic, yeah. Uh, yeah, OG Johns. You know the leisure Johns that all the captor wears. Guess what this yeah, yeah. dude had on? Just chilling randomly is some like high-ranking leisure wear, okay? He walks up to the microphone. He's like, hey, guys, listen, I can't really talk because I'm going to another panel, but I just want you to know. Uh, I just really appreciate you all being up here. I came back from Star Trek Las Vegas, and that whole con was white AF. So I appreciate you. Will did not censor himself the way I just censored myself. No, he did not. <laughs> we, like, everybody else in the room was like, oh. oh. 
thank you, sir. I appreciate you. <laughs> and was like, all right, guys, peace. And just vanished into the ether. Never <laughs> saw him again until I found him online. It was the coolest experience I have ever had. And I just have been following ever since and got a chance to learn some things, which we'll get into in a little bit. I want to focus more on track for the time being. Um, and it was just an incredibly, uh, incre- incredibly incredible experience to layer on top of an already dope weekend. Hi, Alec. Hello. Um, so it was just, it was just really, really great. Um, so that being said, Will, what first introduced you to Trek and how long ago was that? When did you, when did you know? When was that moment when you were like, this is it, this is me, where's my, how do I get a uniform? How do I sign up for Starfleet? Like, oh, let's go, let's go, go fleet. Uh, I mean, I think I grew up with uh, Next Generation with a lot of people in my in my generation, if you will, uh, it was on syndicated TV. So it was whatever was on on a Saturday afternoon on a random Tuesday night. It would just be syndicated. And uh, I'm just watching it a lot growing up. Very similar to all sorts of people that watch TOS, TNG. This is before streaming. So whatever you caught on uh, on TV is what you watched, is what you got. And you enjoyed it because it had a very familiar and yet somewhat radical premise the fact that you know people all got together they figured out problems they're all capable of their jobs but they weren't sniping at each other uh they worked through their problem they talked mostly right so i think initially i kind of had i kind of had to grow into it a little bit initially it was just like ooh, cool spaceships and aliens and i didn't really get it until you know i was around 10 or 12 watching more of it and like wow they're really talking about stuff and they kind of figured it out. And knowing that it was part of a larger universe was really neat, right? That there was, oh, there's an original series. Sometimes once in a blue moon, you might catch an original series movie, mm. like on you know Saturday night, right? And like, wow, that's somehow connected, right? This is before Marvel's um, expanded universe, right? Star right. Trek was doing this con- connection, right? Um, and then, of course, I remember, you know, Deep Space Nine. I actually remember being, I love Deep Space Nine. It's my favorite series, but I remember being scared kind of scared of it because it was a little dark the Cardassians were kind of like they were kind of like um, jerks jerks (laughs) and it just seemed different than TNG but I knew it was still kind of the same universe but I kind of like hey why are these this new crew darker and they're they're mean to Picard like what's going on here but I like the fact deep down I like the fact that all it's all connected and um I like the fact that uh it may sound silly but they're 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 laser gun their phaser didn't look like a gun. It looked like a TV remote. The TV remote I used to turn on the TV. I'm like, wow, that's so neat. I, I could literally pretend, you know, I'm in Starfleet by, you know, you know, clicking on the channel. So I thought that was really cool, very neat. Uh, and that just was the kind of the seed that planted on. And I think, you know, of course, I still love Star Wars and all bunch of other stuff too. But I think Star Trek, it just uh, it grew with me as I grew older. Like I, I loved it even more. Um, and I think, and it was all she wrote after that. That's cool. So, if Deep Space Nine, well, before I get into who your favorites would be, is there anything about Trek that enabled you to? Because a lot of the, the reasons that people love Star Trek, aside from you know the whole sci-fi element, is the fact that it was such an inclusive show, right? There was somebody for everybody mostly um 
was that level of representation acceptable to you or did it leave you wanting more from the series as they grew and as they developed? Yeah, it's probably yes and no. I think initially uh, I wasn't really thinking about it, but then, you know, I thought about like, yeah, there are a lot of Asians, next generation, right? There might be Sulu back in the original series, uh, but there's not a lot of, you know, people that look like me. But initially I wasn't really thinking about that as a kid. To be honest, I wasn't really right. thinking about it. But at the same time, I did gravitate towards people I identified with. You know, I wore glasses very early on when I was in fourth grade. So, of course, Jordy LaForge was so cool. And, of course, I knew him from reading Rainbow. Uh, he had the coolest relationship with Data. He knew what was going on. Uh, loved him. Um, but then I think over time, I started thinking, like, huh, maybe this universe, as great as it is, could be more inclusive, could be more representative. So it got me thinking. And that's, again, why... I liked it more because I could approach it from many different angles because the idea of it was it's us in the future, right? It wasn't like a Star Wars where it was just like, yeah, you know, galaxy far, far away. Ostensibly, it is us, right? So at some point, we have to get there. So how do we get there? And um, it was inspirational, but then also at the same time, you're like, huh, it still seems to have weird uh, blind spots or these kind of holes. So that kind of makes me want to dig even further, right? So. Yeah. Trek is definitely a, a self-editing document. You know, a lot of the things that were progressive back in the 60s, back in the late 80s, early 90s, are um, either commonplace now or Star Trek's approach to these quote-unquote progressive things are now like, oh, inappropriate, you know, um, just because as a society we have managed to evolve <laughs> past certain things. I, I, I use that society term um, loosely. Very loosely. It's, yeah, because <laughs> people setting fires to states because of genders. I don't understand it. Um, okay, cool, 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 cool. Tight, tight, tight. Was there anything... It's it's funny. I'm sorry, real real quick. It's funny no, you, for it. you mentioned about Sulu because I actually just recently, you know... I don't know if you've noticed, Will, but people have been stuck in a house lately. So um, <laughs> uh, I actually just yep. recently rewatched the original series of Star Trek. And I was, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the great thing about Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and all this series that came after it was that while there was definitely a hierarchy as far as the stars the each of those shows were truly ensembles that were put together like they were put together like a bridge crew or at least a a a defined cast for the show that had you know people had substance they had weight they had a true character and i don't think it you know i don't think it's unfair to say that the uh the original series didn't really have that right but that being said having rewatched it i actually was really struck by how much sulu is in the the series more so than any of the other you know ancillary characters outside i mean you know you, you is had kirk spock and mccoy um but i would say that Sulu was probably given just as much weight in the original series as Scotty. You know, Scotty definitely had maybe one or two episodes that were 
more defined to him, so he definitely shines as the number four. But if you just go on appearances in the show, I think Sula was there probably more so than Scotty, probably because he was always right there on the bridge. and as Front and we, center. Front and center on the bridge and was given more things to do. There were times where he was called, actually in the original series, to you know sit in the commander's seat, call the shots, go down on the away team, you know, had some say, you know, there were definitely some some episodes where, you know, the, the alien spores took control of Sulu. So he went, it went a little left, so which meant that he was more prominent, more prominent in the scene. And there was actually some scenes where Kirk, and everybody knows William Shatner was not a not a man who was akin to sharing a line, would actually have to share some scenes with Sulu. Um, so it actually... And did... go, go. To, to, to add to your point, like, Sulu in the movies became a captain at one point. Right. You know what I mean? So out of all of them, Sulu was the one to, at least Sulu was the one that they focused on the rest of his career yeah. post-Enterprise. Right. Everybody right. else was posted or teaching at the academy, academy that got called back for the mission. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just Ryan with Kirk. It was like, right. where Kirk at? Sulu was like, nah, I'm going to go over here and take this captain's test real quick. Um, get my ship. I'll see y'all. Yeah, it was really like, Sulu was like, okay, um, I'm done. Bye. And everybody else was like, cool, I'm done too. But Bones was like, wait, Kirk got into some stuff. And they're like, the ship ain't even done yet. What's your party? <laughs> I guess we got to go to the center of the universe because Spock's brother tripping. This is wild. Uh, somebody asked. And he had a family. Sulu actually ended up having a family, right? Yeah. They threw that in there in one of the movies that he had time for a daughter, uh, which is one of those little nice little moments, right? Yeah. Um, I agree. And, and Kirk said uh, the Enterprise wouldn't be the Enterprise without Sulu at the helm. That's right. Uh, someone asked me, did I watch the remastered original <laughs> series? Uh, which, and I did, because that is actually what is uh, streaming on Netflix. Say, is that the only thing that's available? I think they pulled all of the original content. They may have. I, I just know on Netflix it is the remastered one. And um, it where it it wears very well. I mean, the you know, sometimes you can see where they put the 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 different effects, and it kind of stands out. But for the most part, it is fairly seamless within the series. Yeah, it is. I think it is uh, one of the biggest reasons why Star Trek still resonates is because it's on all these streaming platforms, and it looks great. And they did a terrific job with TOS Remastered. They did a terrific job with TNG Remastered. You want to see it for DS9. You want to see it for Voyager. But the fact that it's all there, you know, people, you know, it's wonderful to have people, you know, that were 15 now rediscovering these series that, you know, they were, you know, decades ago. So I think in a lot of ways um, that has allowed it to, to survive for so long because there's so much of it to grab onto. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the cool part about it. You know, I'm hard pressed to think of anything else of, a, of in terms of a franchise or like a mainstream franchise that has as much content. Right? I don't think even Doctor Who comes close. Right? Nope. Star Wars has what nine movies, like a hand. Right? That's basically it. And maybe they just got the Mandalorian, but we're talking Star Trek has 13 plus movies. You know, seven series. It is and and going right you know they're they're continuing to add on to it so it's pretty pretty cool just to to just swim in all of that yeah 54 years of content is a little difficult to turn your nose up at that's a lot 
Good God. 54 years, Isaiah. Yeah. The 54th anniversary was September 8th. It aired originally 1966. Um, and that day will always be like branded into my skull, not only because of, you know, Star Trek, but it's my mother's birthday as well. So like, it's a, a cool little, um, for the person who like drilled it into my brain <laughs> for it to be her birthday, it kind of, it's there. Cool. Yeah. Um, what do you have any favorite there's so many questions will like i, I and i'm also kind of like censoring myself as well because me and trek are <laughs> loose so i'm trying not to get in trouble with any fcc stuff well, um, well someone had a question for will they wanted to know how many star trek uniforms do you have in fact they say you have 100 and Corey higgins uh, says that you've been fretting about exactly what uniform to wear tonight is that true will <laughs> Uh, I haven't actually been fretting. I wanted to wear this uh, Discovery Season 2 Strange New Worlds uniform. But I don't have hundreds, but I do have a lot. Um, I think it was just fun to kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, geek culture is more acceptable now, right? Obviously, it's more commercialized. But the benefit of that is, uh, you know, fandom has the ability to connect with others to, to, to get these uniforms. You know, I don't make them. I don't have that talent. But there are some that make terrific cosplay. I just, you know, buy them and wear them. But, you know, I don't have hundreds, but I do have a few. Uh, and I'm still missing a few. I don't have the Enterprise, those blue overalls, which are fantastic. I still don't actually have the original uh, season one. Are- uh, but the pockets, they're fantastic. I love uh, for some reason I I, I only watched didn't watch all of Enterprise, but there was something about those Enterprise uniforms. I was like, yo, those are kind of fly. I, I mess with those. They were just really random. And they're very practical. They got pockets and yeah. um, but I think that's what's that's fun what's fun about it, right? So I, I enjoy dressing up. Other people love the ships, they love talking about Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the sh- their their entire fans that love like the Shakespeare references in mm-hmm. Star Trek, right? So it's it's all very neat how it is like that. But I wish I had hundreds of uniforms to to address that question. I actually don't. Um, but you know, I have a few. So you have more He's than like, a few. I only got ninety eight. Yo, He's like, I only got listen, listen, listen. Your man, not only got all the uniforms, but all of the com badges are always right, and he always got the pips. So I, I grew up in in. Trek con culture and we were judged harshly on the condition of our uniforms whenever we went <laughs> to conventions so people would get and, and not to judge right but people would get the out of the bag uniforms and just put them on and they'd look like they just got them out of the bag and put it on didn't bother to shake it out you know steam it in the shower you know none of that they just took it out of the bag still and hanging on. Uh, yeah put it on it don't really fit you know um so to see the fandom really embracing, you know, paying attention to details when it comes to uniforms and also, as you say, the commercialization of it, like folks didn't have access to high quality costuming like that unless they made it. So the fact that it's all accessible now is like, I, like I said, I forgot that I don't have nothing. I'm like, this is unacceptable. <laughs> well, um, my behind ain't fitting in them jumpsuits, so I'll be real. Like, it's just not... You could do it. I mean, you could get tailor-made, right? That's the thing. You got to buy the uniform, right, yeah. in your size, and then have it tailored. Yeah, tailoring is, you know, like Garrick said, right, you really need a good tailor. It's all It makes all the difference. But yes, I do actually do get them tailored. See, actually... I know what you're <laughs> 
So you get so you get a chance. So, so let's see. Let's 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 see. Show it. Show off what you got on got on there. <laughs> well, see, I'm in I'm in Zoom mode right now, so I got I got shorts on underneath here. I'm only, <laughs> I'm, only business, I'm only business on top because it's still a pandemic, and I need to relax. Business on top, party. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Hey, I I commend you for putting pants on at all because. Well, thank you. Yeah. For real. <laughs> I've been pants for a month. So. Right, right, right. The pants are optional. For real, for real. Um, Somebody cool, points cool. out that Doctor Who um, has, I think they Beats. meant Beats Trek, because it's been around 50 plus years. Doctor Who has been around since 1963. Yeah, mm. who is. Does it count the, the time in between, though? Or is it not counting that? Like I don't the know. long break? Whovians love to jump in there with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, may, it might beat it by like with three years, right? So Star Trek was 1966, Doctor right. Who 63. Like, yeah, okay. But I don't we're, think we're talking the content impact. is the same. Yeah. We're talking so. content and impact. Yeah, how many movies y'all got, though? Not yet. Not even <laughs> right. How many movies? Sending off of what you said about, about Jordy specifically, Will, um, I had posted a whole bunch of things this week to commemorate the anniversary. And my friend Carl, who uh, asked me not to say his name, but I just said it, so sorry, dude, um, responded to one of my stories by saying, Jordy LaForge made me feel better about wearing glasses. He was my favorite TV character for a long time. I was like, yo, that matters. He was a blind black engineer. Like, that's so cool. Who knows how many people were affected by that? He goes, I mean, definitely. I mean, I ended up being an engineer. <laughs> he wow. said he's... He was, yeah, he's an engineer who wears glasses. And he, he said he rem uh, used to run around with his mom's hair clip. You know the hair clip that everybody's mom had in the 80s? Mm -hmm. That joint. He said he ran around with that the whole time. I was like, bro, what kid didn't? Everybody <laughs> like, did that. All, all, any headband, anybody was just, oh, my. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, nothing's cooler, by the way, than that image of LeVar Burton reading a pad wearing glasses. Right. That was the most meta thing I'd ever freaking seen. Um, so I hear you on Jordy LaForge and I hear you on the impact. Is there anything in Trek, and this might be a controversial question, we'll see. Is there anything in Trek that you wished hadn't happened or is a least favorite thing or makes you cringe when people bring it up? For me, it's two things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, Tuvix is, uh, is a topic of fierce debate, right? There's Janeway and Murderer, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, um, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I would say sometimes I, I think Tre Trek's greatest strength is also its greatest weakness, is the fact that uh, sometimes the answer is a little bit too pat, right? The answer mm. is, is too convenient, but sometimes... You, you want that. Sometimes you like the fact that they can resolve things uh, after discussion or they can resolve things with their, with their uh, daring do and, and whatever. But there's sometimes what almost seems it's a little too clear cut. Uh, sometimes Star Trek can be a little bit too on the nose. Not mm -hmm. all the time, but sometimes a little too on the nose. And sometimes it can pat itself on the back too much because, and I think we can dive into this later, I think Star Trek is, is very idealistic and very utopian. Mm -hmm. And that is both a good and bad thing because it's very much um, it's a very specific mindset in terms of how you look at uh, the world and society. Right. 
Uh, and uh, I think sometimes Star Trek uh, is its greatest strength, its greatest weakness is that sometimes it, uh, life as we know, is not as convenient as the solutions that Star Trek uh, present itself. Although we want it to be, and sometimes, oftentimes, we want to see that. There are other times when you're kind of like, well, that would never really happen. Um, so, but that's a really good question. I'll have to think more about that for specifics. That's a good one. Yeah, that's one that I, I try to ask myself a lot lately, particularly because I'm, I'm doing so much more Trek-related things that, you know, you have to, if you're going to call yourself a critical person, you have to look at it from an analytical lens. Like, you can't, this utopian Roddenberryan society that is developed can't be as perfect as they make it out to be. Um, one of those, you know, one, one point to, to drive that home being the mission, the mission is to boldly go where no one has gone before, but 80% of the planets they visit got people on, which is a very imperialistic colonizer point of view to it that when you sit there and think about it, it's like, oh, snap, like, we paint this we paint the federation and starfleet to have this very you know all-encompassing welcoming accepting kind of air about them where you know they respect people's sovereignty and their right to worship and love whomever they want and all that fun stuff but at the same time you know they pick and choose who they get involved with and when you when you do that it gets a little it gets a little touch and go in terms of whether or not they're they can be as resolute in their, their point of view. Um, one of the things that I, I feel is, is most controversial with Trek, and I think even though it's a very blatant forefront thing about the show and the universe and the whole franchise, is the very thing that people have the hardest time grasping. And that is this idea that humanity can get to a point in society where we're no longer driven by the acquisition of wealth. Right. It's more about facilitating a way of life, basic needs for basic civil needs for people um, so that they can go on to reach their fullest potential. Um, when you eliminate things like having to pay for food, clothing, shelter, education, health care, um, you can go ahead and paint, even if your art is trash, because you don't have to worry about it being marketable because it's art and you're painting because you choose to, not because you have to make rent or something wild like that. Which segues us yeah. into the big thing. <laughs> it's a great segue. Uh, yeah, I think I think you nailed it, right? I think that is the wonderful thing about Star Trek. And it's also the incredibly frustrating thing about Star Trek. Because what I loved about Next Generation, the one I grew up on, is Dr. Crusher doesn't charge you a premium or copay when she puts a hypospray to you, right? Uh, I don't see Jordy paying rent uh, or they have to worry about a landlord. Uh, they don't have to worry about these basic um, um, necessities of life, right? They can actually are free, like you said, to actually pursue their interests, right? Um, and that's wonderful. And it's it's this uh, it's this very it's not necessarily a secret. They make a pretty big fuss about, it, especially in the first couple seasons. But it is it is such a radical notion of just letting people live, and yet they don't really describe how they get there, right? We know first contact happens and somehow, you know, just because we realize we're not alone, that somehow poverty, war, uh, hunger are resolved. And that's, for me, a very unsatisfying answer because I know that that's not true. Like, that's not how actually things became 
things in society, how we won these um, these struggles and you know how we won the weekend, eight hour day wasn't because the bosses suddenly realized, let's just give the workers an eight hour work day, no more child labor, we'll give you a weekend. It had to be fought through strikes and sit down struggles and con- confrontation, right? That real, real, real confronting who's in power, right? And Star Trek kind of always dodges that. It's always like, it's maybe a speech will do it, right? If, the, if, the, if we walk in each other's shoes, we'll figure it out. And on the one hand, that's a great idea. That's a good thing to learn. You should be able to walk in everyone's shoes and talk things through. But it always misses that question of, of, of power and of struggle, mm-hmm. especially between classes. There's no class struggle whatsoever. And I think one thing I would like to bring up is there's a very, um, there's a very, there's a very uh, aggravating argument that's often used uh, with people that talk about Star Trek. It's like, well, that can only happen because you got replicators. You got, you, you go in, you type in something, you got food coming in, you can replicate, you know, all sorts of stuff. So until we get to that level of technology, we can't have, you know, post-scarcity, we can't have socialism, you know, we can't have any of that. And my answer to that would be, we all, we actually have all that capability. Now in, in 2020 earth, right? There's to make sure that everyone's fed, housed, everyone gets the medical care that they need. It's actually not that hard to make sure that no one can, can die of exposure or hunger or thirst. It's not that difficult, right? Uh, we actually destroy food, throw away excess food because it's not profitable to sell it, right? You'd much rather throw it away than, than feed a homeless person, right? It's illegal for me to do that, right? So we actually have the ability to produce all the food, all the medicine, put a roof over people's heads, but we don't do that, right? So it's not really a technological question, but I hear that all the time from Star Trek fans. It's a technological question. As long as we get replicators, until we get to that, that technological point, then we can't have any of that kind of stuff. And I would say we're already there. It's really a political question as to why can't we just provide for people and let people live. I, I laughed because as you were saying that, that came up in the uh, it came yeah. up in the chat. Like, <laughs> as, yeah. as you said the word replicator, somebody said it was a replicator that helped to do that since they can make anything they need in seconds. <laughs> as you were saying, so yeah, like we got three D printers. They're actually printing limbs and objects and things you can use around the house like we have replicators the reason why i feel it like the no one wanted to mess with us until it, it, in the gauge of the star trek universe right it took a third world war three-fourths of the human population decimated decimated there were 75 percent of the population was gone and they happened to put some duct tape some tin foil a tube sock a paper clip a cupcake and a prayer and somehow broke the light barrier. And the Vulcans were like, oh, I guess we should pay them some attention now. Maybe they've chilled out, only to find out that, no, we haven't chilled out. And that's the point of Enterprise, Randy. That series shows us that yeah, no, we had the tech. Yeah. yeah, they showed us that, like, hey, the Vulcans are like, all right, I guess we'll break y'all off a piece. I suppose y'all can take your little spaceship somewhere if you need to. And even though we had the technology to do all those things, we still had to learn like just because you can hold the keys in your hand doesn't mean and and can reach the pedal doesn't mean you're ready to doesn't drive. mean that you, yeah, yeah exactly and i and i think that's the thing to your point will that people have the hardest time getting over it's not a matter of, of means it's a matter of social responsibility yeah and i think uh it is it is one of those things where uh 
that's where the idealism comes into, right? So these values are good, right? So we want to be able to collaborate. We want to have diversity, representation, inclusion. But without that struggle, without that understanding of how um, gains are made, achievements are made to how society advances, then you really are left with a very idealistic way of saying, how do we get there? Because the next question is, how do we get to that Star Trek future? Is it a question of just us being nicer to each other? Uh, walking each other's shoes, talking about it in the ready room or the observation lounge, or is it something else? Now, of course, again, like I said, those are good values to have. But as I think people are living in 2020, people understand that maybe it's not necessarily just us being, quote unquote, nicer to each other. And it, it raises the question, is it an individualistic choice? Is it my, is is the only good that I do just on an individual basis, right? You know, the, the small acts of kindness that I can do. Again, all good things that you can do but is it a question of, of society, of, of, of others working together uh, and realizing their own interests lay in working and fighting for each other? Um, I think that's the thing that Star Trek doesn't, doesn't uh, broach because it never really was built for that, really, right? Yeah. It, kind of, yeah. it kind of backed into these conclusions. And in a way, I'm glad they don't really explain it because I, I know that they, I would be inevitably disappointed so mm -hmm. but i like the fact that it raises these questions right mm -hmm. so when you think about it uh a one world government is a radical idea right the ba they don't really say it but they say there's no more borders there's a one world government and you know that's not a new idea right you go back to and this is where we go into the communism part right communist manifesto written by Karl marx is workers of the world unite you have nothing to lose but your chains right that we are fundamentally regardless of where you're born what nationality you are, your borders, we actually have the same class interests. It's actually in the interest of the working class, uh, interest of the ruling class to pit workers against each other, saying, hey, they, do, they have different values than you. So-and-so, you know, they're a different country, different culture, you know, that you need to fight them, right? To, to preserve your gains, right? That's how racism, right? Malcolm X said the great line, you can't have capitalism without racism, right? Because racism is what divides the workers, right? Divides them and gets them to fight each other, right? based off of very superficial differences, right? You look at our DNA, there is not any difference between, you know, so-called different races of people. There's only one human race, right? Between uh, all the nationalities, right? The, the DNA is inherently the same, right? But you have to divide people into these national borders, these nationalisms, in order to get them to exploit each other, right? To accept their own exploitation, right? So the fact that Star Trek got to a place where, hey, there's a one world government, is a really radical idea. They kind of talk about it, like, yeah, Vulcans came and we kind of figured it out. You know, we're not alone in the universe, right? It's a nice, great answer, but it's a very convenient answer, right? How do you get there? How do you resolve all these differences, right? Because don't we all want to get there, right? You know, these are not a new ideas. They were writing it back in 1848. So in, you know, 2063, how did they get there, right? And that's the thing that's so cool about Star Trek is start raising these types of questions, right? So uh, healthcare is another great thing, right? You just provide healthcare to people, right? So what does that mean in terms of, uh, uh, you know, reinventing how we view people and how we actually control huge swaths of industry, hospitals, providers, that kind of stuff, education. Big pharma. Yeah, big yeah. pharma, right? So, you know, there's no health insurance companies in the future. There's no... Uh, private landlords in the future that we know of, right? You know, Joseph Cisco might own a restaurant, but is it private property or is it personal property, right? There's a great idea that, um, uh, that is delved into in Marxism is, you know, 
are we coming for your toothbrush, right? Or are we coming for uh, the idea of, uh, of of private people, private individuals, private corporations saying we own these public goods, right? We're, you know, as as a Marxist, as a communist, we're not coming for your toothbrush, uh, toothbrush or your your pair of pants, but we're coming for the the collective means of producing things of value in society. Why are we coming for it? Because we produce it, right? The the boss needs you more than you need the boss, right? If we don't go to work. You don't get your, you know, the boss doesn't get his profit, right? We we produce and create all value in society, and yet we don't actually call any of the shots in society, right? You know, the boss says, "Hey, come in." They say, "Jump." You say, "How high?" Right? They can fire you at a time. You have the freedom not to work, but you also have the freedom to starve, and that's not really freedom at all, right? But in Star Trek, you don't have that. We don't see that that um, that dangling knife to say, "Hey, if you don't uh, work at this job, then you're on the street." Because there is no street in, in in the Federation, right? Everyone can kind of pursue their own dreams without having that threat of just being hungry, being homeless, being without health care. And I think those are all those interesting questions that are posed, but it's not resolved because it's not a question of being nice to people on a personal individual level. It's a question yeah. of who's in power in society. Yeah, and to your point, there was a great episode of Next Generation where uh, – it was it was obviously the Enterprise, Cardassians, uh, I think Klingons, and maybe Romulans slash Vulcans. It was three different ethnic groups that got that followed this beacon and they found this oh. random planet and yeah. it was like the creator species that was like, yeah. yeah, we created all of you from the same thing and just kind of scattered you against the wind. So you really don't have any reason to be beefing with each other. In that instance, all of these things that plague us now were, you know, non-factors. There was no hunger, poverty, disease, war, and they still found ways to beef with each other. So it, it stems to reason that maybe the issue is not scarcity, maybe it's the human condition, or in that case, the humanoid condition right. that, that needs to be um, addressed. Uh it's it's I'm glad that you that you took it here, Will. Um, for those who are unaware, myself included, <laughs> with the nuances of, of Marxism and socialism, give Triple Nation a thirty second elevator pitch, if it's possible to squeeze all of that in a, an elevator pitch, on on the benefits of such a way of government for a large group of people like humanity. Sure. Uh, so the idea of socialism and communism is that they're all related, right? So socialism is actually the transition stage between capitalism, which what we have right now, which is where you sell your labor power for a wage, um, the transition between that and communism, which is as defined in the Communist Manifesto, is a stateless, classless society where classes no longer exist because there are no material differences between those that have and those that have not. Right. And it's an understanding of the role of the state, actually, right? So as 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 a Marxist, the, the role of the state is to is to mediate between these two different classes that have opposing interests, right? So as long as there's a ruling class, as long as there's a working class, the working class that creates all of the the value, all the services, all the goods in society, right? And if they're not in control, they're not in power, there needs to be another force that's actually put upon them to make sure that they are not in power, right? And that's what the state does. The state exists kind of as that barrier uh, of the ruling class uh, over the over the working class. And the idea of socialism is to say that it's a changing of uh, of social classes, right? A, a change in social relationships, right? So the, the working class would displace 
the ruling class. And we've had examples of this throughout history. Feudalism, right? So we talk about Game of Thrones, right? So back in the day, there used to be kings and queens and you got serfs and peasants. You work this land because your, your grandfather and your great-great-grandfather worked this land forever and you're always going to be tied into that. There was a revolution, right? The French Revolution and, and so many other uh, revolutions at that time overthrew feudalism, right? The fact that, hey, I don't need to be tied to the land as a peasant anymore or a serf. So what replaced it, right? It, what replaced it was a new form system. It was capitalism, right? The idea that, okay, you don't have to work this plot of land. You can sell your labor power anywhere, right? And at that time, it was a revolutionary idea that I could actually go and, and earn a wage somewhere else, learn a trade, learn a craft. And it produced um, the productive forces in society up to a certain point. But we reached a point where capitalism no longer has, in my opinion, a productive value anymore, right? It's actually a fetter on human development, right? The profit motive, right? So that's what we say when we say socialism is that transition stage to communism, right? Is that socialism is basically the establishment of a state, but in the interest of the working class, right? So they can actually begin to address all those massive social and economic inequalities, right? Why do so many people have so much and so we have so little, right? So how do you begin to uh, close that gap to essentially the point where it becomes nothing? And when it becomes nothing, then there is no class differentiation. There is no, hey, I have more because I inherited this wealth or whatever, right? On a world basis. And that is, of course, a tremendous goal to achieve. We've never been even come close to that, right? But that's actually the idea, right? The idea is to get to a point where there isn't any of that distinctions anymore. And because we don't have those distinctions anymore, we don't need a state, we don't need that apparatus to enforce those that have and those that don't have any. And I think that is, uh, wasn't 30 seconds, but it's, it's as concise as I can get it. It's so. fine. It's fine. There's no clocks in communism. I understand that. Now, what I, <laughs> <laughs> just dialing back just real quick for, for a quick second, if you don't mind. I'm just yeah. curious, where, where did your path to communism begin was this uh how you were raised or something that was introduced to you you know along the way wasn't in college or you know where where did this start for you sure so you know i think it wasn't uh anything special i think i i grew up in just like anyone else right so uh, i grew up in 1986 so i guess i'm a zoomer or no not zoomer i'm a millennial sorry i'm a millennial um Zoomers kind of born in like the maybe the 2000s, right? But that generation, right? So we were told, hey, go to work. Uh, you're going to get a good job, go to school, all that kind of stuff. And as we saw, right, after 2008 with the big recession, you know, it's been actually one crisis after another, right? Um, and an entire swath uh, of people, an entire generation. And it's not just young people, older people also suffer under capitalism too. They can't retire, right? You still got to work jobs until you're 80, right? But especially the youth, right? The millennials and the Zoomers, you know, saddled with debt, don't have a job, got to work gig jobs, got to work, you know, piece together an Uber Lyft job or, you know, do Postmates or whatever, right? And, you know, you still can't afford rent because, you know, rent's outrageous. So you got to live with 10 people, right? And you could uh, forget and, you know, trying to be able to secure enough wealth to purchase property because, you know, the boomers bought them all in their vacation homes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, that, there, there's all of those contradictions exactly too, right? And when you buy a home, right, do you buy a home or you or do you or does the bank own it and you pay back the bank for 30 years, bank, right? right? So right. there's all right. those weird dynamics at play, right? So all those types of things, right? So 2008 recession, then you had, uh, you know, 
the, the social explosions to occupy Wall Street. Then you had the original Ferguson uprising in, in 2014. Then you have this year, right, COVID-19, George Floyd, uh, climate change, right? You got California, the West Coast, literally. On fire skies. It is on fire. Skies. Looks like Blade Runner 2049, but it's 2020 California. Mm-hmm. It's wild, right? And all of those things have an impact on people's consciousness, whether they realize it or not. And I, you know, certainly didn't realize initially when I was, you know, uh, growing up, right? So I was very much into politics, but like in a very, um, you know, go go Democrats to the blue team, you know, the donkeys. I like Barack Obama. And what happened when we elected him twice, right? We had a rise in inequality, a massive inequality in so many communities, let alone the black community, but all sorts of, of, of economic inequality. You had a tremendous dislocation um, from um, the deportations that still happened under his watch. Uh, you had uh, a tremendous, um, you know, you had Standing Rock, you had Flint, Michigan, you had Ferguson happen under a Democratic president, right? Many of these things that are happening in Chicago, Atlanta, um, Oakland, they're all run by mayors who are who are Democrats, right? Many of them, people of color, some of them, even women of color, right? But they're the ones calling in. They're they're the ones calling in the police. They're the ones calling the National Guard tear gassing, right? So the answer was like, okay, so we voted for we voted for Team Blue, right? We voted for Barack Obama. We did all this kind of stuff, and yet it seems that I still can't afford rent. I still can't afford this type of stuff. Things mm-hmm. seem to be getting worse. So do we just vote blue harder, like? And that disconnect starts starts rubbing you the wrong way because the answer to that is like, well, do you like Trump, right? Do, do you like the opposite side? And after a certain time, that doesn't have the same effect anymore because of course I don't like Trump. He's a reactionary. Um, you know, he's not on the side of, of the working class, right? But you can't just kind of hit people over that same club. Like, well, well, it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse off if you don't vote for us. At a certain point, people are saying, it's not that great for me right now. So what do I have to lose? Why is it not working? This game that seems to happen all the time, especially after they get elected, right? It seems mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. Obama is very chummy with George W. Bush, right? The one, the architect of the Iraq war and the Iraq, uh, Katrina, right? That wasn't that long ago, right? And now they seem to say, hey, you know, Trump is really bad. Maybe George Bush wasn't so bad. And for people that kind of grew up, you're kind of like, wait a second. I remember when things weren't right. that Great. I remember you saying things about, you know, George W. Bush being the worst president ever. And now all of a sudden, well, you know, he's hanging out with Ellen DeGeneres, hanging out with Michelle Obama. And it almost seems like it's a game. It almost seems like they're okay. That if you can actually play this game really well, you can kind of make it out. And then you kind of, so that has an effect on people's consciousness, right? So you kind of are looking for more. So I think that's for me how I started looking into the answers, right? Like, wait a minute. Why does it seem like all these stuff, things are not resolved? So you start looking into, you know, you know, I, I became energized by the Bernie Sanders campaign, but even that had its limitations too, right? So I started looking for other answers, and you ended up founding an, an organization, right, called the International Marxist Tendency that kind of uh, explained these answers, right? The answer it being all of these things are actually one continuous struggle, right, going back from ever since there was oppression, right? So the, the, the fight against slavery, the fight for civil rights, the fight for the eight-hour workday, uh, a fair wage, it's all co- actually connected. And it's connected on a world basis, right? Because the people that the United States bombs, right, are actually in the same boat as the people here that are oppressed 
by the police, right? They're actually the same, right? They're just kind of divided up in these artificial categories, right? It's a radical realization because no one's really taught these types of things. They just say, hey, go vote every four years and then go to sleep. Go back home, go whatever, go consume. It's going to be okay. Yeah, because it's your and, business. It's your private, you know, business. Yeah, right. So, but events have the biggest role in kind of changing people's perspective because you're kind of like, wait a minute, we've been, do, we've been doing this and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. So you start looking for other answers. I think that's, I'll leave it there for now, but I think that's a lot of people, I think my generation in particular, have that same path and they, don't, they may not even realize it until they start talking about these ideas. I think that's what's so powerful about it. Okay, I dig it. I see where you're coming from. Uh, and for the most part, it all makes sense on paper. Here we go. How exactly do you, you convince a person? Because you could probably, at the end of the day, convince me, okay, yeah, communism. Because quite honestly, I have not, I don't have a problem, I don't have a problem with most forms of government. Problem I have is people. And so you can, you know, the Communist Manifesto is a fascinating document until you put people in it. How do you, how do you affect the minds of individuals such that they decide to affect a, 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 such a great change on a society? And then how do you keep it working? Because remember, they tried communism in a couple of places, but there were people involved and again, the, the whole thing got, you know, shot in the butt. Where, how, how do you convince uh, a, a member of the ruling class, let's say, that to stop being that? Is, is, uh, it, is, is, this, is this the kind of thing that you, can, that you have to do on an individual basis? Or is there, is there a way to sort of convince uh, a, a vast majority of people of a thing such that, that they decide that they don't need their, their wealth anymore or right. more wealth than anyone else. Right. So that's a really good question. So I think, um, and it's something that, you know, we need to have an answer for, right? So the idea of human nature is brought up all the time. Well, human people are greedy, right? You can't get them not to be greedy and it just ruins everything, mucks everything up. Um, on the one hand, makes sense. Right, because you see people are greedy, they're not nice to each other, right? How can we possibly get it together to do this type of stuff, right? Um, I would say that that's the understanding of Marxism is that actually uh, people's behavior is actually shaped by the material conditions, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say that we, we're, when we grow up, right, when, we're, when we are raised by our parents or whatever, we're raised in a way that we are not designed to be dog-eat-dog. Or say, you know, hey, uh, survival of the fittest, I got mine, so, you know, you know, forget everyone else, right? But it's those conditions, right? It's the conditions actually of scarcity, right? To go back, bring, bring it back into Star Trek, right? Scarcity. Things are scarce right now under capitalism, right? You got to work in order to get food on the table. You got to pay rent, pay mortgage if you, if you have it. You got to pay the bills to, to go to the dentists, all that kind of stuff, right? Those things are scarce. But it's not scarce because... It's natural. It's scarce because people it's control behind a paywall, <laughs> right? It's it, it's behind the ultimate paywall, right? I own this thing because of a piece of paper, a contract to say I own this property, 
I own the rights to this thing, and therefore I can command you. I, I, I make you work a wage in order to get the basic necessities of life. And then you got to do it all over again the next day and the next day until you die, right? You know, basically life is just, is it more than just paying bills and dying, right? I think a lot of people kind of get that deep down, right? But Especially they still now. have to, right? They still have to survive, right? So it's that contradiction, right? So we, I would say is that if you had, uh, if you didn't have this scarcity that's artificially imposed, the fact that we have to actually, you know, work so hard just to get the basic survival, uh, basic necessities of life is not natural, right? Because look how much food we throw out, right? Look how much uh, waste that's thrown out. There's actually more actual housing right now that exists than homeless people, right? But it's just not allowed. You just can't allow the homeless people to come in to these homes because it's illegal. But who wrote the laws? Why is it illegal, right? Yeah. And who protects the people that write those laws? So you kind of see what's the role of the police and the state to say, law and order. I protect this. This is my property. This is my land. These are my rights. Where did that all come from, right? So, but in reality, we have the ability to provide for everyone. No one has to die of thirst and hunger anywhere in the world, let alone the United States, but anywhere in the world, right? It's not that hard to, to, to crack. Um, so, so, but you're, so if we eliminate those, uh, that artificial scarcity, I think people wouldn't necessarily get in this mindset of, of being dog eat dog, of being of having to, to fight for these crumbs. And that's where it comes from, right? I got to make it because if I don't make it, I'm not going to live, right? So I will do whatever it takes to survive, right? The hustle and grind, all that kind of stuff comes from a basis of, 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 of scarcity, of the fact that if I don't do this, I won't survive. And it per- creates all these perverse incentives that aren't, isn't actually natural because we actually have all the resources there. It's a question of who controls it and who distributes it, right? So then the question is, okay, so who contrib- who actually um, controls these things in society, right? It's actually the working class, right? Because that's actually the true power of the working class, the proletariat as written in, in, in the manifesto and other stuff. We create all of the value in society, right? So Jeff Bezos, right? Richest man in the world, right? Does it mean anything if those warehouse workers don't ship those goods for, for prime, for two-day shipping or one-day shipping, right? He, all of those all that wealth that Bezos has is nothing if those warehouse workers go on strike, right? Or if they withhold their labor, right? Then nothing gets moved, right? Uh, Amazon also has tons of software engineers, software workers. If they don't do their job of making sure Amazon's website's up online, Bezos doesn't get his wealth, right? So it's understanding, beginning to understand who actually has the real power in society. It's actually the workers, right? You know, not a light bulb turns on, not a truck moves, Nothing moves without the, the kind Nobody permission eats. of the working class. Right. Nobody eats, right? You saw who's really essential during the pandemic, right? Oh, you just stock grocery shelves? Who all of a sudden became essential? And yet, are they paid anywhere close to the value they produce in society? Of course not. Nope. It goes, to the CEO, that it goes to the CEO of, of, of a grocery store or what have you, right? So then that's the, the real trick, right? So if we all, if we have the power then how come we don't call the shots in society, right? And that actually raises the question of who's control society, right? Is it a piece of paper? Hey, I, I had this contract. So the question is, how do you unlock that potential with people, right? To understand their actual power. And that's actually how you uh, gain all of these reforms that we've had up to this point, right? So the idea that civil rights, eight-hour workday, no more child labor, uh, uh, you know, the, the maternity leave, the weekend, 
I, I think people, I wonder if people ever ask themselves, why do we have a two-day weekend? Why not a three-day weekend? Why do we work five days a week, play two days off, right? Isn't it possible for us to actually work less while still being more productive? There and that kind studies. of goes... Yeah, there are studies where people are working like four-day work weeks, three, four-day work weeks, and they're getting more things done, and they're happy about their job. People aren't calling out as much as they used to because they're not overworked. Correct. So that's the question. So why do we work for so long? And now the question is, you know, a 40-hour work week is actually a luxury. Sometimes you got to work on the side, right? You got to work a second or third job, right? Yeah. It's because that's actually how the capitalists at this stage in the game in 2020 that's how they make their profits. They extract even further productivity from the workers while paying them less, right? So that's the thing, right? We work longer because that's actually where they get their profits from. We create more for them for a longer period of time while getting paid less, right? And I think that's the real understanding of kind of understanding how events work and history works is like, that's how people are exploited. That's how, you know, it's uh, inherently uh, unfair and inherently unnatural, right? But also shows you a way forward saying like, if enough people realize this, right? Can you imagine the power that we actually have? And I think that's what gives me hope is that you actually don't have to convince the ruling class. They're not going to be convinced of that. They're going to fight tooth and nail. But you can realize that it's actually the workers and the workers outnumber the ruling class. And we are, there are more of us than them. The only reason why I think they still call the shots is because they actually control things um, in terms of ideology. You got the media, you got the schools, you got TV, right? Pop culture, all of that, you know, all that kind of stuff is used to actually keep workers in line to say, hey, things aren't so bad. You know, we'll give you some stuff here and there. It, except the actual real question of like, why don't we actually call the shots in society, right? So that's the only way they can maintain their power because there's actually not that many of them that actually have the ability. There's more of us. Right. We're just out organized, right? We don't have that consciousness on that wider level, right? But that's how you won, uh, you know, you know, national healthcare service in Canada and the UK. There was a threat of socialist revolution. There was a threat during the New Deal period with Roosevelt. There was a there's going to be a social revolution in the United States. So fine, we'll give you these concessions, right? We'll give you that kind of stuff. And I think understanding that relationship is that nothing is given, power is not contested, is not given freely unless it's contested, rather. I think understands the how people are actually more powerful than you give them credit for. And I think that's that that's my answer to that, hopefully. So you don't need to convince the ruling class. You need to convince everyone else. And there's more of us than them. My favorite, uh, and I'll not to put you off, Gabe, my favorite Lucy Parsons quote is never be deceived that the rich will permit you to vote away their wealth. That's true. That Absolutely. struck me in a way that I was like, dang. Yeah. <laughs> like I was like, oh, my chest. <laughs> Go ahead, Gabe. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just, um, yeah, just as a, a general, a fellow millennial who's also very socialist in her beliefs, uh, getting more political as time goes on because I'm at home and can do that, right. uh, is, is mostly, you know, like for, like you're saying, you know, get people to listen, get people to notice. And then what? That's kind of like one of the bigger questions. What, what, things do you think people can do um anyone who's listening or watching who is just like that that sounds like something i'm into where i want to help make change so if like you know it, it, it or even just like you know being aware that things are not 
obviously perfect and the things that have not changed is in, have only gotten worse in my entire lifetime, <laughs> you know, um, is it, like, what can people be doing now? Because, you know, that all we hear is vote November, right? But what happens after what happens on November 4th, which happens to be my birthday. So I'm just like, is it going to be a good birthday? Is it going to be a bad birthday? We'll find out. Um, but it's like, what happens that day, um, regardless of who wins? Like, what are we doing um, to kind of move things in, in the, the small ways that we can and in the ways that historically we have done, um, like, empower us? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, again, that's a, that's a great question, I think. My personal opinion, right, obviously, is is whoever wins on November 4th, the working class loses, right? Biden doesn't stand for the working class. Trump doesn't stand for the working class. They're literally parties of the ruling class, right? They're literally of the same class. So that's just my personal perspective on it. How, what's the way forward, I think, is is kind of going back to, I think, what someone else earlier had mentioned is like, okay, wasn't it tried in other countries, right? Wasn't it tried in the Soviet Union and Cuba and China, all those quote-unquote scary places that were told, right? What about those cases? How do we make it uh, a reality now in, in 2020? And I think one of the most important things that we can do is actually study the history of these revolutions, right? Because it's actually a roadmap, right? Because if this is actually one continuous class struggle, we have a lot of lessons to be learned of what was successful, what wasn't successful. A lot of it was paid in blood when they weren't successful, right? So what was the Soviet Union? What was China? What was Cuba, Venezuela? All these countries that are thrown about what, and this is obviously probably the subject for many other podcasts, but the idea of understanding those particular moments in time in history, why revolutions happen, why were they successful, not successful, is due to organization in a lot of ways. Uh, a revolution, it happens when the masses take to the street. Uh, but whether a revolution is successful is actually a totally separate question. It's a question of leadership, of of the masses, right? And as you can see, there's not a lot of leadership right now in the masses of the working class. A lot of the labor unions, they're in bed with the companies, or they're in bed with capitalists, yeah. right? They don't, they don't want you to go too far. They, hey, just you know, get your 25 cent a raise and go back to work, right? They don't want to go too far, right? So the hit, so for for me, the crisis of humanity is actually the crisis of the leadership of the working class of the world. So we have to build that leadership, and we have to build an organization on a worldwide basis, right? That can link up workers. In the United States, in Mexico, the UK, in Venezuela, in Brazil, in Australia. It sounds grandiose, but that's actually the only way to do these types of things, right? How do you tackle climate change if you actually do, if you can't look at it from a global perspective, right? The advanced layers of the workers in those countries saying, hey, we need to put a stop at this in every single country. How do you do that? You start building by talking to people, building organization, talking through these ideas with people one-on-one -on -one or groups of people about the history of all these struggles. We're not taught in school, right? We're, you know, we're, we're not taught any of these types of things, right? We're just taught, you know, slavery ended and then somehow we went, you know, man on the moon and then Facebook. That's history, right? And it's and <laughs> right. a story of guns <laughs> right, right, like, there's a whole lot that y'all skips. A whole lot of stuff <laughs> that skips, right? And it's not an accident. It's by design, right? It's by design, right? Yeah. But it shows you, but, it, but the thing that gives me hope is look at what happened in 2020. Can anyone have predicted a pandemic happening? But then also what happened with George Floyd, right? The idea that uh, a police precinct building got, got burned down and they did, a, they did a poll not too long after that. There was higher approval for burning down the third precinct in Minneapolis than support for Joe Biden or Donald Trump at that time. That snapshot. Mm -hmm. 
that shows you the mood and how quickly people can change in terms of their ideas. Uh, there's a great line by uh, Lenin where he says, there are, uh, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen, right? Yeah. So all of a sudden, in the summer, we got people saying, abolish the police, like flat out abolish the police. Who would have thought that was going to be a demand? Now, of course, that started being diluted down to defund the police or maybe give them a little more training for you know, body cams, what have you. That's just going to happen, right? That shows you the ruling class trying to kind of control this thing, hold it together, right? But the fact that these things can emerge suddenly is a good thing. It shows you that the, the contradictions of society are already there. We just have to, when they erupt, meet those challenges, explain to people, like, why is it happening, right? Why are, why are Black people still being killed in the street in 2020, right? Why can't we provide enough face masks and protective PPE to people while we have bombs literally you know, $2 million wasted when a single missile goes off, a tomahawk, and we can't give people face masks. People had to like get, you know, trash bags to cover their face initially during the pandemic. It's wild, right? And all these types of things gets people wondering, like, wait a second, doesn't quite seem uh, everything's on the level, right? People will say, hey, you got to wait. In, you know, in communism, you got to wait in line for bread. We were waiting in line for toilet paper in March, right? People were running out. So in capitalism, right, they were running out of stuff here, right? So it shows you um, these questions can emerge out of nowhere, kind of like lightning, right? But then you kind of have to be there to explain to people, like, okay, this is why it's happening. You're not imagining this type of stuff. It's just where we are right now. So what, what's the way forward is to then build an organization study histories of a past revolution or successful, what was successful back in the day, how they built a successful revolutionary party in these particular countries, what were their tactics? Again, topics or other, other podcasts, that kind of stuff. But that's the idea is that you need to build something consciously to lead the working class when they're in the streets. Um, because when they're in the streets, that's when they're the most powerful. Look what happened in June. Thousands and thousands of thousands of people worldwide, right? So the Black Lives Matter movement was worldwide. It was in the UK, mm -hmm. it was in Greece. They were talking about the problem of the police in other countries, right? Because they understood the role of the police in those other countries, right? And you had it in suburbs, right? In Kansas and Oklahoma. It was inspiring to see. Um, that's when the working class is its most powerful, right? Worst but, birthday ever, by the way. <laughs> I know, right? But, but if they go home, that's when they lose all their leverage, right? Yeah, um, I don't know. If, I don't know if folks remembered on Juneteenth, Boots Riley made a big appeal saying, "Hey, for one day, we're going to shut down the ports of uh, Oakland, right? The, the the dock workers, the longshoremen of Oakland, decided to have a one day strike in support for Black Lives." Angela Davis came out, tremendous amount of support. It was inspiring to see, but it, it didn't have the legs. Didn't transcend to on a nationwide scale. It didn't extend to, to Jersey or New York, but imagine if it did. In addition to the people taking the streets, what if we said, nothing moves. You're not getting your Amazon packages. You're not getting your, your McDonald's, your Burger King, your Starbucks. You're not eating. Your soft, you're not <laughs> eating your soft, you know, even just your, you know, even tech workers, office workers are also exploited too, right? They can withhold their labor, right? What if that was tied in? To the, to the movement for Black Lives, the movement for climate change, right? It's, it's, do we have an organization that can link all of these struggles, whether it's racial, racism, police brutality, climate change, imperialism, you know, ICE, right? You got the deportation. What if we said, we want to stop uh, deporting kids and putting kids in cages? 
we're going to shut down holiday shipping on Am- you know, Amazon workers are organized to shut down holiday shipping um, for the holidays, for example. Can you imagine how quickly they'll say, okay, maybe we won't deport people anymore, right? But are we organized in a place to be able to do that? And you have to be able to do that in advance because if you do it after these things pop up, you're kind of too late, kind of missed the boat already. So you have to do it in advance knowing there's going to be another social explosion down the road, right? There's going to be another, unfortunately, another killing down the road. There's going to be another kid deported, another bomb dropped on a wedding, you know, in Pakistan, right? Obama killed a bunch of people in Pakistan, right? There's going to be another one of those, right? So we need to build in advance that to say, hey, when that happens, we are there. When the idea is ready to say, hey, what if we actually collectively said enough is enough, but we, we use our greatest power that we have, which is withholding our labor power, right? Saying, but uh, withholding our labor power. But that isn't something that, happens overnight and it's not easy and you need to build in advance of these types of things and it can be very painstaking uh and but that's kind of my longish not really short but longish answer to say what what is to be done basically right and there and and lenin a famous russian revolutionary wrote an entire book called what is to be done about this exact question right is how do you build that leadership of revolutionaries of the working class in advance all of these social explosions to make sure that a revolution is successful. And I think that's kind of what my answer to you would be. I would love for folks to get organized to the point where we don't have to revolt, right? I would love a revolution to occur without three quarters of the population dying in some type of terrible war or conflict in order for make that hurt. I would love also, you know, from the other side of that, for people to internalize it and hold the ranks, as you say. You're speaking about labor power and and folks withholding the means. Um, I often think about when we, specifically when it comes to police brutality and how widespread it is um, historically, not only, you know, geographically, it would take every single cop Every single one just be like, nah, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing this anymore because you're letting this guy do this without having, you know, any type of responsibility, any type of accountability, any type of justice. And it's making me look bad. If for nothing else, yo, you're making me look bad. I got into a a towering debate with my dad this weekend, who is a good dude, but is super boomer lefty. And it's like, bro... (laughs) And he's a union guy. He worked a union for 40 some years. So I would have thought of all people, like you should understand how this union in particular, speaking of police unions, are failing, not only their their union members, but also the communities that they're supposed to serve. And he was like, well, let me tell you how unions work. I'm like, sure, dad, because I, you know, don't read. They tell me how it works. And he tells a story about there was a time where a guy was effing up on the job and you know, everybody was saying, yo, you got to get your stuff together. You're making everybody look bad. Like they're going to come down on all of us unless you get it together. And he was like, ah, whatever, it's fine. And apparently his performance struggled to the point where, you know, his position was in jeopardy. His union rep spoke up for him, defended him, all that stuff. But then turned around was like, I'm not doing this again with you. Get it together or you're done. And I feel like if more people who belonged to powerful collectives via the police, via the military, via government, was to turn around and say, this is unacceptable for, if nothing else, but you're making me look bad, 
right? This, this society is very self-serving. It's very selfish. It's very self-centered. I need to do this for me. I want this car. I want this watch. I want these shoes. I need this house. Uh, and regardless of what anybody else needs, I need this thing. If, if everybody, if you spent all your life trying to obtain this beautiful suburban house, right? And other people in that neighborhood are not taking care of their property. They're leaving trash all over the place, wild parties all hours of the night, all nights of the week, making the community quote unquote look bad that money, that cul-de-sac is going to come to this person's door like, yo, get your life together because you're making the rest of us look bad. That type of accountability is not, that type of self-accountability is not present in positions that would make the most difference. I feel like if I'm going to be a cop, the first thing I'm doing is going to IA. Like, where, where do, where do y'all need me? Where do y'all need me? You need paperwork done? You need some stuff, you need some stuff filed? Let's get organized. Because obviously we got work we got to do. Let me get in this. You know what I mean? And it's, it's just hard. I wish there was, I wish there was a way for us to get to this point, and by us I mean human beings, without it having to come to violence and the threat of decimation first, like every single revolution that you've mentioned, every political struggle, every conflict has always been, with the exception of one that I can think of, has always been, you know, blood, guts, and tears, okay, and then stuff happens. That one that I'm thinking of, and, and Gabe, I, I thought of this when you were asking your question earlier, in Iceland in the 70s, the wage gap between men and women was so bad, in, in addition to other working conditions that were so terrible, Every single woman on that island was like, nope. One day they all got up, they all left their jobs, they all left their houses. So women who were, were homemakers, you know, they took their kids and they walked out. They didn't clean nothing, they didn't cook nothing, they didn't fold nothing. And all organized in, you know, the capital was like, we demand this, these are our demands, and would not go back to work until it happened. The next year, Iceland voted their first female president into office. So it's like, yeah, Iceland's a much smaller country, Right, and that impact was felt after less amount of people said something about it. But if that's what it takes, I would rather everybody get up and be like, "Nah," than than you know, seventy five percent of us dying and having to wait for the Vulcans to see us. <laughs> so I would say, I mean, that's a good question too. Is is inher- is it inherently all violent? Right? Is it is it is it just destined for that? And my answer to that would be that is only true if the work, if we'd actually don't do what we need to do in terms of organizing in advance of all these types of things. Uh, I would say actually the, the 1917 October Russian Revolution actually was relatively bloodless. It was only the counter-revolution that happened afterwards that was very bloodless. But what happened was that the Bolsheviks had organized in advance for, for years in advance, had won over every single uh, massive layers of the population within Russia, because it was a czarist country. It was a, a terrible, feudal country. Right? They, had, they had won over. By the time of October 1917, you had mass defections in, in the military and the, and, the, and the police, right? How It's what Lenin wrote in State Revolution, the armed bodies of men. In the final analysis, the state is just the armed bodies of men to back up right. private property, right? When push comes to shove, they're going to be there to protect windows for Starbucks or windows to like a bank. Right? That's what they really care about. Right, That's what the state has enough money for. They don't have any money for anything else. But at the end of the day, that's what it actually represents. But you 
you can actually fracture. You can actually break um, that 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 unity of those armed bodies of of, of men and now women, right? You have women uh, police and women and soldiers, right? It's because where do they pull uh, those people to be in those armed bodies? They pull it from the working class, right? They pull it and they train them, right? But the contradictions of capitalism, right, still affect them. And we know this by looking at history. If you look at the Vietnam War, that tumultuous time, civil rights, Malcolm X, Black Panthers, that kind of stuff, there was a tremendous uh, period of, of social unrest because they were actually losing the U.S. military, right? So you had GIs coming back, linking up with civil rights, saying, we're not going to go fight in Vietnam anymore. Muhammad Ali is saying, I'm not going to go, right? You can draft me, but I'm not going to go over there and kill a Vietnamese person. They never did anything to me. Meanwhile, in this country, right, they call me all sorts of names, right? Right. And they were starting to radicalize the, the armed forces. Right. There were the term. Um, I think people here may have heard it fragging. Right. The idea of, of you know, fragging is they were they would roll in a, a fragmentation grenade into the tent of their superior officers in Vietnam because they refused to go in to fight an endless war. Right. That shows you. I'm not saying that's going to happen here. And I don't think it will happen. What we're saying is that even the 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 armed bodies, these people that are uh, allegedly unassailable, they can actually switch sides. They can kind of see the 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 changing uh, balance of, of forces in society. Right? Who's actually in control? Who's actually who's on my side? Who's on who's on the other side? Right? And I think that's what actually you kind of saw actually in June, when the things were reaching a crescendo in Washington D.C. Right? When those huge protests outside the White House. Right? Trump was saying, hey. I might call in the military. I might call in to, to actually put this down. And there was actually dissension within the Pentagon because they realized, wait a second, if we bring in the military, they may not actually follow our orders. They may not actually say, hey, we're going to put down these protesters, right? Because those protesters are their cousins, their nieces, their aunts, their uncles, right? There's a great shot of a black, um, I don't know if it's a National Guard or black uh, army soldier, right? When he was being confronted with of, of chance of Black Lives Matter, he was crying. Right, there was look. There were there were there was being videotaped. There were looks of him looking side to side. He was being swayed. That there were doubts of saying, "Am I on the wrong side here? Am I, am yes, I in the bro. exactly right?" <laughs> and what we say is that that actually is a tremendous social force that does occur in these particular moments, right, where the ruling class actually loses its control of these of its apparatus. And uh, if you build an organization. In advance, a political organization that has a message, that has the ability to reach these people, that's where you can actually link up all of these elements of society, right? Whether they're, you know, working a desk job, whether they're working as a laborer, whether they're working in the military, to link up and say, we actually have all the same needs, all the same interests. Well, why are we actually at head, uh, put at odds with, the, at, uh, with each other, right? Who's pushing us against each other, right? And I think that's why having a political program is important. Having a political party of the working class is important, right? Not the Democrats, not the Republicans, our own political party to advance these ideas. Um, that's how you start reaching people uh, when these big moments arise. And they're going to come. There are going to be more and more of these moments uh, because capitalism is, is you know, not, not solving anyone's problems. Question two. How would it... All right, so assuming you've got most of the black and brown people kind of at least getting what you're saying, right? Get, kind of recognizing mm -hmm. all the points and 
also assuming that you're not going to get most of the 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 ruling class to sort of make any any sort of shift how do you get to the minds of people particularly white people rural america that is very very wrapped up in the idea of american capitalism and it will save your life sort of thing how do you get to that mm. kill it with fire i mean what american dream. <laughs> um some you can't reach but i think many you can reach because i think the the the, the answer that that the the ruling class doesn't want you to to really know is that uh poor people are poor people. There are poor white people and there are poor black people. Of course, black people face extra oppression under society. But they, but our perspective of Marxists is that a poor white person actually has far more in common with a poor black person and a poor Pakistani person, a poor Vietnamese person, a poor Venezuelan person. They actually have far more in common than the bourgeois of their own country, right? But we're taught to say, hey, you, you're exactly right, Randy. The idea of the American dream, you work hard, you play by the rules, it pays off. You get that house, you know. You get that vacation, get that pension, all that. Kind of, you can retire, right? I would say to that is, we actually don't need to convince anyone. We can let capitalism do the heavy lifting. And as you can see from the crisis to crisis that we're going through, you uh, the living standards that are decreasing for everyone, including white Americans. You kind of see that that opens up opportunities to explain to people like, okay, so you work hard, you thought you could retire. Why do you still have to be a Walmart greeter when you're 70 and 80, barely making it, right? And you supposedly have a retirement income, right? What happens when, um, you know, I think people say that you can save up and retire, but there's that huge mortgage foreclosure back in 2008. There's a huge looming eviction crisis, uh, people losing their jobs, so they can't pay their mortgages, they can't pay their rents, right? Um, uh, there's a story not too long ago with about Airbnb literally collapsing overnight mm -hmm. because of the pandemic, right? People thought, hey, if I just own these 10 places, I can always rent them out short term, man. It's a great, great deal, great hustle, that kind of stuff, until the pandemic happened. And then all of a sudden, no one was coming to stay in your nice Airbnb. And all of a sudden, you're on the hook for about you know five, 10 mortgages, right? Because the idea was that this was going to be there all the time, that mm -hmm. people, you could just kind of flip this type of stuff, or you can flip houses, or that kind of stuff, right? But it, as a Marxist, you kind of understand like the arc of history like the, how these these dynamics are playing out. And you see capitalism is in a, in a process where it doesn't it doesn't have a way out. So you're going to have these crises, right? So all of a sudden you kind of see a lot of people losing, you don't, you don't, want, you don't want to see it, but you do see it, losing their incomes, losing their homes, losing all that kind of stuff. That has a tremendous impact on people's consciousness, whether they realize it or not. But then it's on us to organize and explain to them, say, this is not because of, immigrants taking your job. It's not because of China who created this virus or whatever. All of these conspiracy theories, right? We give them the right answer saying, the reason why this is happening is because of capitalism. The reason why this is happening is because we actually have all the same interests. We actually don't call the shots in society. We don't have to fight for crumbs anymore, right? And not everyone will, 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 will listen at first, and you may not win everyone. But the idea is that you can actually win a lot of people. The fact that, you know, I'm on this show talking about Star Trek communism is pretty <laughs> is pretty cool. It shows you a mood has changed, right? People are actually willing to talk about, hey, wait a second. Things don't seem to be working. How can we actually talk about these types of things? Um, but it's a process. And that's why you need an organization and others to do it, because you just can't do it by yourself. It takes time, that kind of stuff. But 
that's how I explain it. You, you know, the, 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 the conditions themselves are going to pose these questions to people. And I think a lot of people will be looking for answers. Yeah. And a lot of people are, you know, the, the voting age demographic has shifted to include people who have seen nothing but recession, who have done nothing but work multiple jobs and still, you know, live with 13 people. And suddenly the American dream that their parents and grandparents have drilled into them is no longer applicable or realistic. Um, So I feel like there is definitely a a growing amount of support from, from that end of the population. My concern uh, is, is the moderates, I don't want to say like my dad, but comparable to my dad, you know, folks who have, you know, subscribed to that paradigm of, of giving 80% of your life to somebody else for a wage. And, you know, now you're pushing 70 and can finally relax. Um, I, I, my concern is, is them. And it's, it's not so much them in terms of, cause not all of them belong to the ruling class that all of them are that, that 1%. Many of them, you know, are now finding themselves in comparable financial situations, but aren't terribly removed from, from poverty. And I just, I wonder if, if all of them are going to be able to be reached before, you know, we got to call in the Vulcans. Cause that would be, that would be bad. So, I, I, I could just see the Vulcans be like, we told y'all that this would happen if y'all didn't get your stuff together. Like we literally gave you a whole 54 year long thing to tell you what, what you need to be doing right. Yeah, I think that that's a very good question. And I don't think we, I don't have a crystal ball and no one has yeah. a crystal ball, but you can't, we can't say that we can't win any of them. We can't say that we can win all of them, but we can say that we can win a good chunk of them because the idea of, of, of studying these ideas, Marxism and social economy is that ideas can change. They change based off of conditions. Material conditions can change just like anything. We grow, you know, uh, you see it in nature, right? What, liquid water can become vapor, can become steam if it's heated up enough, right? That's a great example for, for class consciousness. Things are really heating up. It's boiling, right? It's all coming to steam. Where's the steam going, right? It has to be going somewhere, right? But it has to have that uh, element, that heat that makes it go from liquid to vapor. And, you know, there's also an in-between process too. There's a point at which liquid is not quite a liquid. It's not quite steam either, right? It's in-between, right? And I think we're in this in-between stage, right? People are kind of asking those types of questions, right? Um, it's almost kind of like a, a steam engine, Right. In order to actually propel a revolution forward, to repel uh, victory forward, you kind of need a, a vessel or a mechanism to trap all that steam that's coming up, all that anger, that frustration, alienation, right, coming up, right. But you need something to kind of channel, like a steam engine, to put into a piston to to make a locomotive run. Because if you don't have that steam engine, it just as much steam as you generate, it's just going to dissipate. And I think that's what we view building an organization is that we need an organization like a steam engine to, tr- uh, to harness the steam engine to then propel, propel things forward. And um, otherwise, then, yeah, you can maybe lose some of that steam. Maybe you can lose some of those moderates. But moderates can become revolutionaries, or they may stay the same, or they may become reactionaries, right? If we don't do our job correctly, then, yes, unfortunately, then perhaps some will, will buy into, hey, it's those immigrants stealing our jobs or, you know, whatever answer, right? It's very familiar, right? But if, I think now the fact that we're talking on shows like this and else other places, people are kind of connecting like, yeah, wait a second. 
maybe, maybe what I was taught, maybe what we've been told isn't quite true. And uh, there's got to be enough of us to be able to explain it to people. And then obviously say, what's the next step? I agree with you. What's the next step? And um, I think the next step is, you know, joining an organization, talking about these ideas and uh, uh, having actually, ultimately, at least in this country, a political party that is of the working class, right? The Democrats uh, and the Republicans are not, uh, they're not working class parties, right? The Democrats actually were a slaveholding party back in the day, right? It was reversed. The Republicans wanted radical reconstruction. Democrats were the slaveholding party. It reversed at some point, but none of it was actually organically tied to the labor movement the trade unions or the working class. So we actually need a, a, a political party in this country to, to put out class demands to say, you know, why don't the, the teachers unions and uh, grocery store workers go on strike uh, in order to determine whether or not they're going to go back to work uh, because unsafe, right? What about uh, the idea of, 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 of withholding our labor to make sure that uh, uh, no, one's, no one's deported anymore? Uh, all those types of things. None of it's actually proposed by any of these parties, right? So that's that's the perspective for us is that we need that that uh, vessel to be able to talk about the ideas, not just on you know one on one or with friends, but talk to to literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then millions of people. Because that's when you're reaching that many people. That's is when the working class truly has its power. That's when ideas become a material force is when enough ideas are believed by enough people to then take to the streets and then occupy those streets, occupy their workplaces, occupy um, their factories, their office place, whatever, what have you. That's really um, what we're trying to get at because that's really the power that we have in society. That's right, Triple Nation. That's where your power lies. Your power lies together, organizing and having friends, having that camaraderie, if you will, amongst people that will have your back. And speaking to which, you've had our back for a long time, Will. We have your back, obviously. But I don't think you have a triple designation, do you? Do you remember? I can't remember what it is if you had one. You know, was it something Green Lantern related? Because I used to love Green Lantern a lot, but I also, I kind of stopped liking uh, Green Lantern. Because um, they're space cops. Good do, boy, good I, boy. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. Cool. But then I talked, but I talked to, I talked to Kennedy um, on chat, and I thought I came up with a really good designation of Comrade Tribble, which hey. makes a lot of sense. Strength in numbers, right? Yeah. Tribbles themselves could bring the mighty Klingon Empire to its knees. Uh, because of its of, of their sheer numbers, um, but that would be that'd be a fun name. But regardless, I think uh, I think all of us are comrades, uh, whether we know it or not. Even people listening right now, uh, you know, they may not w- realize how much they share in common with other people around the world. All right, so comrade triple, but it's not official until you get sworn in. Um, Isaiah's been quiet tonight. Isaiah, I'd love it if you did the honors of swearing will mc winning <laughs> into the winning. nation <laughs> all right well no worries here man it's a quick and painless procedure so just repeat after me okay i'm okay. a triple furry <laughs> i am a triple furry i am a triple true i'm a triple true from the way i roll to the way i coo from the way i roll to the way i coo <laughs> 
shall it be said, so shall it be done. Yes, so shall it be said, so shall it be done. Will win the Star Trek communist now known as Comrade Tribble. Perfect. Will. Y'all are far too kind, far too kind. Thank you. We love you, man. Where can folks find out more about you or some of the things that you believe in? Sure. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Boomer Niner. My handle is the Star Trek Communist. Um, <laughs> the organization I work with uh, is Socialist Revolution. Uh, you can check us out at socialrevolution.org. And our international organization is at Marxist.com. Very simple to know. And we operate in 40 countries and growing. We are the international Marxist tendency. So you can find me there also talking Star Trek too. So very excited about all the new Star Trek that's coming. So. It's a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah. All right. We got to get you back on to just nerd out just just all Trek one night. Yeah, man. I would love that. Don't say that, bro. Because I would love to see Will in a in a RPG. I'd love to see him in our Trek. Uh, can we can we get Will on the USS and Zynga? Can that happen? <laughs> okay. All right. We can make it happen. We can make it happen. I, I just want to bring back the end the USS and Zynga. I need that to happen, guys. I'm all right. Soon. Well, thank you, thank you, Will Win, for sitting in with us. Uh, we got to get out of here, ladies and gentlemen. The show will be available for your download, streaming pleasure. Come the morn, any place and every place that you find podcasts, including BlackTribbles.com, Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio. You name it, you for podcasts, that's where you'll find a Black Tribbles. Hit us up at Black Tribbles on all the social medias. Like and follow us. Give us a five-star rating and review because that really helps people find the show. And if you have any quotes and, and thoughts, email us at blacktribbles at gmail.com. Com. For the horror triple, storm triple, super saiyan triple, for the super triple, for master triple, for the uncanny triple, for dark joker, zen triple, and for the new comrade triple, this is the bat triple. In parting, we say Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. What she said. Bye. Bye bye. As said by Rom. <laughs> yes. In deep space time. This machine kills fascists. <laughs>